This is an ABC podcast. Hey ladies, just as a warning, this episode's pretty full on. It contains discussions of sexual assault. So if anything comes up for you, you can reach Lifeline on 13 11 14. And we've also got some extra resources for you in our show notes. Well, it's time now to take a look at an issue that's dominated headlines, debates and conversations. Rates of sexual misconduct and assault... Some of Hollywood's most powerful men have been exposed... When we started this podcast a couple of years ago, Me Too didn't really exist. Not as a hashtag, not as a worldwide movement. To jog your memory, before Me Too, when women talked about sexual assault, rape and harassment, they often felt alone. They felt guilty or ashamed. They felt isolated and marked. But when all these other women, rich, poor, black, white, powerful, disenfranchised, old, young, fat, thin, started saying sexual assault, me too, those isolated voices united into an almighty and furious roar and it became very clear that sexual assault was horrendously commonplace. People started talking about sexual assault and harassment and unpacking why it existed in secrecy. Those discussions were everywhere. But do you know what we didn't hear about? Having sex after sexual assault. Because a lot of people are dealing with this. According to the Australian Bureau of Statistics, 1.4 million Australians have lived through childhood sexual abuse. And one in five Australian women have experienced sexual violence since the age of 15. So if that's you, how do you find the courage to be intimate again? After I was date-raped, it really compounded all the feelings that I had. So after that happened, I didn't have sex for like three years and I honestly was like, you know what, I'll never do it again because I am terrified. I'm Yumi Steins. Ladies, we need to talk about intimacy after sexual assault. So many women have experience with sexual assault, whether they've lived through it themselves or know someone who has. But sexual assault isn't easy to talk about and it can be really hard to listen to. So my advice is have a crack at listening to this episode, but please know it'll be hard. So researching for this podcast, we spoke to many women who have lived through sexual assault. I'm talking heavy stuff like date rape, child abuse or rape in marriage. We spoke to young women and older women and the one thing all these people had in common was how alone they felt and how they struggled with anything sexual afterwards. For this episode, we're speaking to two of those women who have experienced sexual assault. I would very confidently say I have never had sex sober. I realised it didn't matter who I was with, what position I was in, like, whatever. Like, it, it didn't matter at all. It always hurt. This is Kelly. She's lived through two sexual assaults. The first one happened a little over ten years ago. She was young, leaving a nightclub. She'd lost her friends when a guy she'd met earlier that night offered to help. He seemed really nice. 
Instead, he held my hand so tightly I thought it would break and dragged me into a skate park down around the corner and um, forced me to perform a sexual act on him. Basically, he just forced me to give him a hand job. but I was 18, I was a virgin. I don't, he was probably the third guy I'd ever actually kissed, so it was really very new thing for me. I spent most of the time there kind of trying to make sure that he didn't force himself on me. So I think probably the only really good thing that I ever took away from it was that I probably saved myself from actually getting raped that night. I guess I just was completely scarred from that point onwards and in a bit of denial about it. Also blamed myself a lot and probably thought I deserved it or I had made it happen by, you know, being too, I don't know, kind toward him or whatever it was. Kelly's abuser forced her to give him a hand job with her right hand. It makes using that hand a real trigger for her. I would feel like that was happening to me, like, all of the time. The couple of days after it happened, I remember washing my hands nearly nonstop. I just felt so dirty. Ever since, and, like, it's almost comical to say, but it's not. Like, I can't hold anything that's the shape of a dick. I can't hold a glue stick in my right hand. I can't hold a banana, my steering wheel in my car. Like there's so many things that will ignite that feeling in me. And I guess I feel like I feel the sensation in the palm of my right hand. So if I grip the steering wheel the way that you usually would with both of my hands or with my right hand, bang, it's on. I will feel the trigger right there and then. Usually, if I need to use my right hand to drive, I will not use any more than the very ends of my fingers. So, like, I'm barely gripping the wheel almost, like, or, I don't know, trying to do the strongest little finger grip possible. Or I drive with my left hand all the time. I have an automatic car, so that's fine. And I will just drive with my left hand, one-handed, to avoid it. Yeah. What happened when you were 25? I guess I just went on a night out with a bunch of girlfriends from work and I'd had the same sort of pre-drinks as everybody else and then I remember getting a champagne and talking to this guy and the next thing I remember was I couldn't hold myself up. I dropped my handbag and everything. I lost my phone and everything and then the next thing I remember was lying in the street vomiting uncontrollably. A few days later, one of the girls who was there that night called me and was like, I just need to talk to you because you've been really normal at work and it kind like it's, it seems a bit odd to me that you've been so normal. And I was like, what do you mean? And she's like, after what happened on Saturday night? And I said, what happened on Saturday night? And she's like, you know that we found you. And I'm like, found me where? And what had happened was this bloke had taken me from the bar and walked me to his car down the street by the side and had raped me in his car. Oh, that's terrible, Kelly. I'm so sorry that happened to you. Yeah, look, it, um, I, I won't sugarcoat it. Like, it's really shit. But I guess I've come to a point now where I realise that it's, it is what it is. It's a part of my journey and I just need to, you know, do what I need to do to make myself feel better, whatever mm, it is. And sure. also not avoid absolutely everything because I was just like, you know what will fix this? I will never date. I will never have sex. I will never do X, Y, Z. Like to me, it was like, that was the solution never to do it. When you think you might like someone and and you want to be intimate with them or or not, I guess, (laughs) um, how is that? How do you go about having those conversations? 
I did see a guy for a while last year. I was just really honest with him because I felt like that was the easiest thing to do. It was extremely difficult. At that point, I'd hardly told anybody what had happened to me. So yeah, I was just like, listen, I need to be really honest because this could go really pear-shaped. And it did on a couple of occasions. So the first time that we had sex, I probably cried for the next 36 hours. And then the next time I would have cried for two hours. And then the time after that, I cried while we had sex. So, you know, it was just great. But I guess because I'd been honest with him, he knew what was going on. And fortunately for me, he was like caring enough to be like, that's okay. Like, let's talk about it. All that sort of stuff. I went through a massive period where I thought I'll never be enough for anyone. Because like, I feel like I physically cannot touch a penis. Like that's not going to happen for me again. Um, And so I'm like, if I let that be a problem, I'll never be enough for anybody. So what I need to do is just be really open about it and be like, listen, if that's going to be a problem, let's, let's cull it right here. Like we won't go any further because that's who I am. And hopefully one day I'll get to that point, but there's a possibility that I won't because, you know, it's been 11 years and I still have like panic attacks driving my car when I grip my steering wheel with the wrong hand. Kelly takes antidepressants for PTSD and depressive symptoms. She's seeing a psychologist for help in how to be intimate again, but she's got lots of issues trusting men. I've never had a boyfriend. I have been terrified of men up until the last couple of months. I still would get nervous around guys, but... The last three or four years, I could not look a man in the eyes. If I went somewhere, like I went to a friend's house and there was a single guy there, I would straight away go into full-blown panic mode because I'd be like, what if he hits on me? What if he tries something? What can I do? I lived in so much fear all the time. So, yeah, it's been a major impact on my life. This is really heavy stuff to talk about. Why did you want to do this interview? Mostly because I wanted to be able to help others. We don't talk about it. No one says like, like you, I don't know, you don't tell your girlfriends like, oh, I was sexually assaulted. Like I told a couple of people when it very first happened and then the only people that knew that what had happened to me the second time were the people who were there. My psychologist made me realise that it's not that it's not happening to people, is that no one wants to talk about it because everyone's scared. And I was like, okay, well, if I can be not scared, it will help someone else. So because I wish I had that, that's why I need to put myself out there and do it. Kelly didn't report either of her assaults, and the majority of women don't. Dr Ellie Friedman is a sexual health doctor and medical director of a sexual assault service in Sydney. She says only 10% of women report sexual assault to police. Dr Ellie sees hundreds of women each year who've been through a sexual assault. Normally, this is within a week of it happening. We see women of all ages from 14 to 80 years old. I would say the majority of the women we see are aged 15 to 25, but we do see a very wide variety of ages and backgrounds and circumstances. We certainly do see a lot of women who are in their 40s and 50s who may be recently single, having come out of a long-term relationship and maybe are dating for the first time in a long time. Dr Ellie says she hears stories like Kelly's all the time. And just like Kelly, women often blame themselves. 
Part of her job as a doctor is convincing people that's just not the case. It doesn't matter what kind of skirt you had on or what colour lipstick you were wearing. It's never your fault. Dr Ellie says changing that mental script can help you get close to someone again. I think in order to move on from a sexual trauma, and I would hesitate to say that people get over it, but are able to continue with their lives as best as possible, I think it's really important for people to try to talk to their intimate partners about the fact that something's happened. Women may not be able to discuss the details of the assault, but to at least say to a partner, this is something that happened to me, I think is a really important first step. To be able to say something like, sex isn't great right now, but I would like to make it better. And to be able to work with their partner on ways to make it better, to try and set a goal, to know what you're trying to get towards. And maybe the goal is not crying during sex or maybe being able to complete a sexual act without asking you to stop. Maybe it's getting undressed in front of you. It can be really small or really big things. But to be able to articulate where it is that you want to go can often be a really useful first step in in moving there. It's great advice, but like all advice to communicate, it's a lot harder than it sounds. Trust me, a lot of us would rather play Ring a Rosie with a bunch of murderous clowns than confront a past sexual assault. Dr Lauren Moulds is a psychologist from Adelaide. She sees plenty of women struggle with how to tell a partner they've been through an assault. But bigger than that is how to deal with the trauma they've been through. Dr Lawrence says part of the problem is how our brains work. Our brains are really cruel in the sense that our brains are wired to remember trauma. So we're wired to remember more fearful experiences than we are those happy times. So that lower part of our brain, that more primitive part of our brain, remembers, I guess, all of the input in regards to kind of what might have been occurring at the time of the event. So different sensory memories of what we might have seen or heard or um, smelt at the time of an incident. And then when those things occur, when we re-encounter those triggers or those sensations, then our brain floods full of wonderful memories or not so wonderful memories of the traumatic event. And our brain then has trouble remembering whether the trauma is happening now or whether it happened in the past. So let's say a sexual assault has occurred. What are some of the major issues in managing intimacy after this incident? I think one of the really challenging things is that everybody is different after sexual assault. It can be something where it can be a one-off incident or it can be a cumulative impact that we need to sort of navigate. For some people, they might experience trauma symptoms straight away. For some people, they might want to have more sex. So for some people, they feel numb and all they want to do is, I guess, try and get some feeling back. And for some people, they don't feel like they can ever be sexually intimate with anybody ever again. So in practical terms, how do you help a woman who's trying to work out how she can have intimacy and perhaps an intimate relationship? I think what's really important is being considerate of time. So I guess making sure that there's not sort of a clock on that or any expectations about when she should be able to, I guess, be over it or be able to be intimate again. So everybody is different in regards to kind of their timeline or when they might feel comfortable for doing that again. So we'll be really wanting to sort of explore 
how she felt about it or some of the thoughts that might have been going on for her. And they're really important that we start to explore some of those body memories and also the body responses to it. So often what women struggle a lot with is that they can feel like their bodies betrayed them in a sexual assault because they might have orgasmed or they might have become aroused during the sexual assault and they feel like their bodies have betrayed them because they felt like they were being violated or they lost control, but their bodies were reacting in a way that they didn't feel was consistent with how they felt about the incident. So often we need to explore kind of and reconnect their body back with their minds that they feel like they have that control again over their body. And we need to kind of, I guess, explore for them what sort of flashbacks they might be having, what things they might find triggering and being really kind of open and explorative to how that might change over time. What about if you're with a new partner? How do you bring up this conversation if you're like on your first date or your second date? I think that if you're on your first or second date, it's really about being able to communicate boundaries with somebody without necessarily, unless you want to, communicate history. So I think that there's a there's a place where perhaps you might want to tell somebody the full story or your full history, which is in many ways that emotional or historical intimacy. But on a first date, you perhaps don't want to reveal that to somebody and it might not be appropriate to reveal that to somebody. What we're then communicating is going, hey, I don't like it when my neck's touched or hey, I don't feel comfortable when, you know, this is done or this word's said or no, I don't like dirty talk or I don't like this. Mm. So it's then about being able to communicate and being assertive with sexual boundaries and sexual preferences. And I think it's about being really clear that if you are about to have sex and someone's not respectful of those sexual boundaries, that that is likely to be a triggering experience for you and to try, I guess, and be at a point where you feel assertive enough to say, hey, this is what I feel comfortable with or this is what I don't feel comfortable with. If you can't kind of respect these boundaries, I'm not able to be sexually intimate with you at this point. Sure. A lot of what you're saying sounds great, but probably hard to to say in practice, like to stick up for yourself, to announce your boundaries in that way? I don't think it's about, you know, the very unsexy thing of going, look, here are my rules. Do you want to abide by these rules? Yes or no. I think it's about having a conversation as openly as we can about what feels good for them and what feels good for you and being able to explore what both of your sexual preferences are, as I guess, as opposed to boundaries, which isn't necessarily a sexual, a very sexy word. If we think of it as more of preferences about what feels good, it can then be a little bit more of an empowering experience to go, hey, it feels really good when you do this, as opposed to you can't do this, you can't do this, Mm. you can't do this. This idea of a safe word, I thought it was mostly in the realms of bondage and S&M, but in your work, you sometimes suggest that people have a safe word. Can you explain why? So having a safe word is a really um, useful way, I guess, of being able to express to a partner really easily, well, as, as easily as we can in that moment, that we're being triggered, that we need things to stop or to slow down. And it's about, I guess, having that agreement before we get into that activity so that we are at a point when they really understand that when we say the safe word, we need things to stop as quickly as possible. Traditional words such as stop can be triggering within themselves for some people, particularly if they've experienced sexual assault where they might have said stop a lot to a perpetrator and therefore actually having to say stop again can be traumatising. So sometimes it's about coming up with even a silly word or a novel word or a word that both of you are going to be really aware of is a word that means you need to sort of slow down and stop in that moment. Lauren, what's your advice for women who might be listening to this and thinking that for whatever reason they just can't imagine rediscovering intimacy again? I think my advice is to be patient with your body and that the first step 
is to start to develop some intimacy again with yourself. So showing yourself some kindness, reconnecting with your body. So working out again, before you even start to contemplate being intimate with somebody else, working out what is going to feel good for you to be intimate with somebody again? What's going to make you feel safe to be emotionally intimate? What's going to make you feel safe to feel sexually intimate? And then I think the second step is thinking about opportunities where you can build other forms of intimacy. So emotional intimacy or psychological intimacy, having that kind of on the couch eating a chocolate biscuit moment. And then working to a point where you feel safe with that person again. And if eventually you get to a point where you feel like you can be sexually intimate with somebody again, great but that's not something that's expected of you or something you have to rush into straight away. So I often used to try and close my eyes to get away from it, but he used to hold my face and stare into my eyes. So that's something that I have struggled with. This is Chantelle, which isn't her real name. A heads up, Chantelle's story is really full on. So she's got a couple of kids, and when she was a child herself, Chantelle was sexually abused by a family member. Initially, her abuser called them games, and they started in the bath. It was to push myself out of the water as far as I could. So it was by doing a bridge. So you put your arms back and you lift yourself up and see how high you can get. And that's that's how it started. Um, So that game very quickly turned into, he would uh, attempt oral sex on me. And yeah, that that is my first memory. Uh, And that just obviously progressed over the next few months, those kind of games. What age were you? I reckon I was five or six. I just can't remember anything before then. I was so young. Because you were so young, did you know that it was sexual abuse? No. No, so it took me a few years to figure out even what was happening and because Mm. it started so slowly, um, the the person definitely built my trust um, that these were games um, that we were playing and by the time I figured it out, it, it was a few years later and I did start to fight back and ask for it not to happen. But then that's when the threats came in to, you know, he said he would kill my parents or he'd kill himself. And as a child, even if it's the person abusing you, you don't want anyone to die because of you. And obviously as an adult, it wasn't because of me. Those were simply just threats that were being made. There's a lot to Chantelle's story. She also grew up in a home where she experienced frequent domestic violence. Even now, decades later, she suffers from complex PTSD and daily migraines. Her abuse has also had a huge impact on her sex life. When Chantelle was learning how to be intimate with someone again, there were lots of things she found difficult. There's things that I couldn't do those first few years. So oral sex uh, was out of the question um, being done to me because I would just see my abuser's face um, instead of the person, the other person um, doing it. But for me, it was more not initially when I was first um, becoming intimate uh, with my children's dad. It was uh, more months and years later into that relationship that I started to get all the flashbacks during um, the experiences uh, where I would see his face or I would get um, a feeling like sometimes sex doesn't feel 
the greatest all the time. It's not always um, incredibly pleasurable, but for me, as soon as it's not incredibly pleasurable, um, it can very much remind me of my abuse. And then my mind, I, I just dissociate uh, throughout the experience then where my body's going through the actions, uh, but my mind is somewhere completely disconnected um, and somewhere else. And that was because uh, for so many years, I couldn't escape my abuse. And um, my brain got very, very good uh, at escaping my home life. Um, even if uh, my body had to go through it, my, my mind was somewhere else. So that's something even to this day that I still have to uh, practice with being in the moment and not dissociating from my experiences to do with intimacy, um, but also to do with everyday life. Remember how Dr Lauren, the psychologist, said that sometimes women orgasm during their abuse, which can lead to more feelings of shame and confusion? That happened to Chantelle. Yes, uh, not regularly, but that definitely did happen. And so for me, orgasms uh, definitely can be a trigger. It's something that sometimes I can orgasm and I will automatically start apologising. I'll throw my hands over my face um, and say, I'm, I'm so, so, so sorry. Um, I didn't mean to. And then um, I will stop and I'll curl up in a ball, <laughs> kind of in the fetal position. Um, and sometimes I'll cry. Um, so sometimes for me, um, I always felt like my orgasms, uh, when I would have them through my abuse, I never understood it. I never understood why it was happening for me. Um, even if I was in pain and I didn't want it to be happening, um, and I'd fight so hard, my body, I felt like it would still let me down by having an orgasm, but it, my body is just, if it gets a certain type of physical touch, it will just orgasm on me, whether um, it's pleasurable or not, and whether I want it or not. Um, so, I, yeah, for a long time I felt like my body was really letting me down. And also people don't talk about it. People don't say um, that it is possible to orgasm um, during your abuse. And I guess for a long time that really cemented in my mind what my abuser was saying to me, that he used to say you wanted it you ask for it. Um, even when I'd fight, he would say those things to me. And when that gets repeated to you year after year, day in, day out, you really do start believing it. So you're an adult, you've got two children, uh, yes. eight and 10 years old. Yes. How have you managed intimacy as an adult? I was terrified um, when they were young that I would end up becoming like my abuser, that I would abuse my own children. I just had this absolute fear within me that if my abuser was capable of doing it, maybe it's something that runs through our family. And so for those first few years, um, I would ask uh, my partner to bathe them and do all those kind of things because I was terrified that, yeah, I would turn into someone like that. Chantelle, just speaking to you, you sound very fluent um, speaking about sex, speaking about your history of abuse, um, but also quite, like quite a positive attitude towards sex. Yeah. With your husband at the moment, um, what kinds of conversations do you have like during sex and around sex? 
uh, everything and anything. Uh, we have we go into it uh, with uh, the aim of it being uh, really pleasurable for both of us. So we will speak about anything um, to do with it, even if it's to do with my abuse. We will discuss it, and during it, uh, when we are having sex. If we need to direct each other to say this feels good or that doesn't feel good, you need to change it. Yeah, we do that. And I will say to him, uh, like, just say he's touching my breasts and it's uh, not feeling so great because at different times of the month, I don't want my breasts to be touched. Um, I'll say no and I'll move my, I'll move his hands away. And he listens to that. He's really, really good that when I say no, he doesn't then go back to it five mm. seconds later because he's forgotten or whatever. <laughs> him to do. So the fact that he uh, really does listen to me throughout the experience uh, means that over time he's gone to know me and um, he knows when to touch me and when not to touch me and kind of my body language. And I am more than happy to initiate sex uh, on a daily basis. But that's for me uh, because at the end of the day, often I find it quite a healing experience to connect back with my own body and with my husband. Uh, It's really become a part of my routine. (laughs) It sounds really boring when I say routine. Uh, But it's just, it's part of my healing process. It's funny how my abuse was sexual abuse and yet the way I'm healing is often through positive sex with my husband. It brings me back to my own body um, and I can connect with my husband and I can now make eye contact and it's a really, really great experience. It's so freeing to be able to have complete control over my body and what pleasure it is able to experience. I want to thank Kelly and Chantel for being so brave and honest and open and telling us what they've been through and how they've navigated intimacy after sexual assault. Also, a massive thanks to all the women who got in touch to share their stories. If you've lived through sexual assault, I hope this episode has helped you feel heard in some way. Or if you know someone who has, I hope this has helped you to understand. If this episode has brought up any big feelings for you, you're not the only one, and you can call 1800RESPECT, the National Sexual Assault Domestic Family Violence Counselling Service. They're on 1800 737732, or Lifeline, as ever, is available on 13114. Ladies, We Need to Talk is mixed by Anne-Marie de Betancourt. It's produced by Cassandra Steve. Supervising producer is Madeline Jenner, and our executive producer is Justine Kelly. This series was created by Claudine Ryan. The manager of Audio Studios is Kelly Reardon. 